Our reading of God's holy word this morning is also a psalm. It is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the name of his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, gives food for the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. From time to time, it is important to get back to brass tacks and look at basic things. Uh, We're going to do that this morning. Our catechisms do that. We are a Reformed church, and we continue the practice of catechizing. A catechism is a, uh, a statement of faith that's in a question-and-answer form, and it's designed to teach young children or new uh, disciples the basics of the Christian faith. It's, it's not a replacement for the Bible. It's not seen as a Bible, but it does give kind of an overview of what the Christian faith is and puts it in a systematic form. In this particular church, there are two catechisms that we use most extensively. One is our official catechism, which is the Heidelberg Catechism, and the other, though not official, we love it, it's a statement of our faith, it's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Both of these documents go through what it means to be Christian very well, and if you've never read them, you really ought to. Uh, It gives you a a really good kind of broad view of what it means to be Christian. But as you can imagine, if you're going to write a document like that, you have to really choose a very significant place to begin it. You have to find something of, of extreme importance to open the door, to get yourself moving. And in both of these cases, the catechisms open with questions that are fairly famous, if you know catechisms, but they start in two different places. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, there is a emphasis on the concept of purpose. Why are you here? What, why did God put you here? What, what reason do you have? The question is, what is the chief end of man? That is, what's your purpose? What is it that you're designed for? Well, the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God 
and to enjoy him forever. Now, that's a summary statement, and how you do that gets unpacked in the catechism, but it's, it's the question of uh, why. Most people wake up in the morning, and they aren't quite sure why they're here, and that bothers them at a certain level. Whether they are successful or unsuccessful, whether they are uh, winners in the world's eyes, or whether they are currently losers, um, there seems to be some reason that why we exist, and it doesn't seem to have anything to do with that, and most people don't know what it is. Well, the Shorter Catechism begins with, you're here to glorify God, and you're here to enjoy Him. That's what you're made for. The Heidelberg Catechism starts off with a different question. It's a question of comfort. The question is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Comfort. Where can I find something that will give me hope? Where can I find something that will lift me above despair? Where can I find something that will make the sorrows and difficulties of this life, which everybody has, uh, have some sort of meaning and, and give me a sense that life is worth living. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism starts there. Uh, I'm not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. This is what I take comfort in. Uh, which is better? to focus on purpose or to focus on comfort? Well, I don't know that I can answer that because both of those things are at the very essence of what we need. Uh, when I teach world religions in college, one of the things I tell my students is, if the world wasn't a bad place and if humanity didn't generally kind of agree it's a bad place, you wouldn't have anything like religion as we know it. Because while the world's religions don't coexist, they don't agree, uh, they do kind of come out of that question. Why is the world a bad place, and why do I feel meaningless, and why do I have no hope? Um, that's where we are. We, we don't know what our purpose in life is. We don't know where to find comfort and hope and joy. And so really, the better one to start with is the one where you're currently feeling your need. And if you go further into the shorter catechism, uh, you find out that both of these needs come out of the same place. In question 18 and 19 of the shorter catechism, we read this. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? The answer is, 
The sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. So in question 18, you find out why you don't seem to have a purpose. It's because you were designed for a purpose and you're completely broken from the machine you were designed to be in. You are subject to original sin. You're part of a race that has been born broken. Uh, you are inclined to sinfulness. You are not inclined to goodful, goodness. You're supposed to glorify God and enjoy him forever, but you're really lacking all the ability to do that because you're a sinful being. So there's the problem of purpose. And then the very next question is, what is the misery of that estate wherein two man fell? And the answer is, all mankind by their fall lost communion with God and are under his wrath and curse and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So if you're feeling like you don't have any comfort, there's a real reason for that. Uh, as a fallen child of Adam, uh, the curse of God is on you, and it's on the world. And all the things that you think are bad about the world actually are, because God's curse is on it. And so you are needing a purpose, you are needing comfort, you are desperately in need of these things, and generally the world doesn't have any particular answer for you. However, at its bare essence, at the very brass tacks of what it means to be a Christian, a Christian finds that there is a purpose to be had, a Christian finds that there is comfort to be claimed. The world cannot give it to you, but in Jesus Christ, it's there, and it's really kind of the starting place for people when they consider this religion thing. Um, you should probably doctorally begin with God and who he is. Practically, you should probably begin with what is the Bible, because that's how God communicates and what it is. But at a very, very practical level, we begin with, I have no sense of meaning, and I have no sense of hope, and I am drowning, and I desperately need something to grab. That's functionally where people start. And you can't really ask them to start anywhere else, because if they feel panicky, there's a reason for that panic. Our psalmist today is basically reveling in the fact that he has purpose and that he has comfort. That's literally the outline of the psalm. In, in verse 1 through 2, the psalmist declares purpose. We read, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. It begins, like so many of the Psalms, with a statement to the world at large. The psalmist is calling upon the entire world to join in the praise of the true God. That's what they're made for. 
they don't know that, but it is what they're made for. And the psalmist begins his joyful song crying out to the unbeliever, crying out to uh, the, the prince, the pauper, the, the Albanian, the Russian, the African, crying out to the whole world, praise the Lord. That is what we're made for. And then uh, he turns to himself and calls on himself to do it too. But he first calls on the world to do it. And that is very significant. He ends it that way too, by the way. If you heard our reading of the psalm, it begins with, praise God, praise the Lord. And it ends with, praise the Lord, praise God. And it's a call to the whole world. What do you make of that? I don't remember who I was talking to this week. It was one of you, but I don't remember which one. But we were talking about the book of Psalms, and Martin Luther made the comment on a number of occasions that the book of Psalms is like a little Bible. Because in the 150 Psalms, you can find literally every doctrine in the Bible there. And so it's like a little compendium of the whole Bible. But in these modern days, there have been people who've taken Luther to task and said, that's not true. There's a doctrine that you cannot find in the book of Psalms. That doctrine is love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, usually when this is brought up, uh, Psalms are brought forward that talk about fighting the wicked, uh, you know, asking the Lord to avenge his justice on the wicked and that sort of thing. And so they say, sure, the Psalms contain most of the doctrines of the Bible, but it doesn't contain the doctrine of love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I would challenge that. I think that the Psalms which call the world into fellowship with our covenant God are exactly loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's very much the essence of it. If you love your neighbor as yourself, what do you want for your neighbor? What, what really should drive your heart if you love him as you love yourself? Is there anything less than I want my neighbor to be in a saving covenantal relationship with the Lord that would be true love of my neighbor? If you fell below that level, would you be loving your neighbor? I would say the answer is no, because no matter what else you do for your neighbor, no matter what kind of kindness you show him, uh, if you leave him outside of God's covenant in Christ, what would be more hateful? What would be more destructive to them? You long for them to know God. You long for them to come into the light and to be born again that is truly loving your neighbor as you would love yourself. Because as I described from the catechisms, wasn't that you at some point? Didn't you wonder what your purpose was? Didn't you feel no comfort in this world? Didn't you feel like you were drowning? Didn't that drive you to the cross of Christ? Isn't that why you're here? Isn't that at the essence of who you are? And if you love your neighbor as yourself, isn't that what you want to see them delivered from? So the psalmist begins, praise the Lord. And he is not talking to just Israel. And he is not talking to just himself. 
he is making a cry to the world, come and praise the Lord. And there are other psalms which go deeper into this, inviting all the nations of the world to come and be God's people. Uh, this is love. This is love in action. But after the psalm begins this way, the psalmist does turn to himself, and he looks at himself, and he says, Soul, what I have called on the world to do, I'm now asking you to do. Soul, praise the Lord. As we've seen a number of times in Scripture, the term soul is not synonymous with spirit. Uh, the spirit is that inner part of you that is in contrast to the outer part of you, the, the body. But when you read the term soul in scripture, in context, it's the totality of those things. It's not just your inner man, it's your outer man, it's the whole person who you are. So when the psalmist looks at himself and says, soul, I want you to praise the Lord, he's calling upon the whole person and saying to himself, remember self. You have been designed to glorify God. You have been designed to enjoy his presence. I'm pretty sure the psalmist didn't know the catechism, but it's the doctrine. Um, you should do that. We are people who are uniquely able to do that. We are the covenant people that God has brought to himself. If the world can be called to praise God, how much more should we be called to praise God? That is why we're here. That's our purpose, to praise God, to glorify him, to give him glory. But you sometimes have to talk to your own self and remind yourself that. It is very easy to practice effective, practical atheism. You're not an atheist, you just kind of live like it, internally or externally. The psalmist begins his praise with self. Remember, you have been called to praise the Lord. And then he makes the statement, I'm going to do that. As these verses come to an end, he says, while I live, I will praise the Lord. So uh, this purpose of mine that God has given me, I'm going to enter into it. I am going to make that my life. I'm going to praise God while I live, and then as it comes to an end, he repeats the statement, I will sing praises to my God, but then he expands it while I have my being. I will praise God as long as I am alive, and I will praise God as long as I am something. As long as there is any being to me at all, either in this life or in the next life, as long as me is here, as long as there is me-ness, I'm going to enter into my purpose. I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to thank him. I'm going to be filled with thankfulness to him and reflect his glory to him. That's what I'm going to do. So right off the bat, our psalmist begins where the shorter catechism begins. What is your purpose? Well, it's to praise God and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it by calling the world to do it. I'm going to do it myself. And I am going to give glory to God. And then he turns to our other question, the question of comfort. Um, in verse 3, 4, 5, he basically kind of gives us an overview of comfort. And he begins with the question of where not to find it. Do not put your trust in princes. 
Well, a prince is a political leader. The psalmist begins thinking about what should I really hope in? Where should I find my sense of well-being? Who can I turn to? To comfort me, to, to give me succor and aid, uh, who can I really look to, to really hope in? The psalmist says, don't put your trust in princes. This is a terrible place to do that. In fact, he says, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. So the psalmist says, if you are looking for comfort, rule out the human race. Um, anybody who is born of Adam can't do it. And that is a message that is desperately needed to be heard in our time and probably in every era. Uh, the human spirit is tempted to idolatry in trusting princes and in trusting people like nobody's business. We want to be able to look at something we can touch, something that is tangible. And so we turn to a political leader and we say, you will be our great aid. Or we turn to another human being who is no better than us, who has the same sinful nature as us. And we say, you will be my hope. You will be my joy. A spouse, perhaps, or someone that you look up to. Who knows? All of these relations are actually good and godly relations, but the psalmist says, don't put your trust in these people. Why would you put your trust in these people? They're born of Adam. They're just like you. If you're looking for comfort, don't look there. Rather, says the psalmist, happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the name of the Lord his God. What is my only comfort in life and in death? Well, it's not my own. I don't own myself. I, 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 I'm not my self-made man. I'm not my captain of my own ship. I belong, body and soul, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has bought me with his precious blood. Why did he do that? Because God the Father wanted him to do that. Uh, he assures me by his spirit, I have eternal life. If I'm looking for comfort, the very first question of our catechism says, I'm going to look to God and not myself or anyone else, but to God alone. And so the psalmist says in verse 5, Happy is the one who has the God of Jacob for his help. Blessed is he, the one who can depend upon God. That is where you will find true comfort. But it does bring up the question of why? Well, effectively, for the rest of our psalm, that's what the psalmist works with. Who do we find God to be that we should make our purpose to be all about praising him and giving him glory? Who do we find God to be that if we look for a reason to get up in the morning to say all the sufferings of life are worth it, it will be him why? What makes the God of Jacob so special? Well, the psalmist is very happy to entertain that question, and he begins to run through a litany of who he finds God to be. 
the very first thing is that he is the creator. Who is this God? Well, he is the one who, quote, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. It's a very practical statement. Uh, who is this God that he should be the focus of all things? Well, he's the one that all things came into being from his action. There is a reason why the world outside of God's kingdom so evangelistically and passionately wants to tear down your belief in divine creation. It is because it establishes that everything that exists belongs to God. It is designed to give glory to God. It is to be the stuff of our thankfulness to God. God has placed us in creation so that we would live before him. All of that is established by creationism, as it is so-called. Uh, God has the right to tell you what is good and evil because God made everything, and the maker of something can look at something and say, this is for this, and it's not for that. And the psalmist turns to this and says, why should your purpose be about God? Why should your only hope be God? Well, show me something that God did not make. He is the origin of all things. He spoke and it came into being. It all belongs to him. That's a very solid uh, reason to place your trust in God. There is nothing outside of what he designed. And the psalmist begins there very practically. But he moves on even further to emphasize that he is the covenant-keeping God. The rest of verse 6 in the New King James says, who keeps truth forever. If you look at it in the Amplified, the way they amplify it is, who keeps truth and is faithful forever. Uh, what do you think is happening here? You've heard my preaching enough to know that when you see this kind of thing in the English translation, this is a word that talks about God entering into covenant with people. It's about God entering into a relationship with a chosen group of people, self-limiting himself by entering that covenant, making promises that we can believe. God is by nature the one who will not break his word. Human beings will. Even the very best of human beings push them enough and they will crack. They are, are made of clay. Uh, there is no truth in man, ultimately. But God is the truth teller. When God makes a promise, God always keeps it. When God enters into a relationship, he never lets go of it. That is the kind of term that underlies the English here. God created all things, and he is the God who will be faithful to his covenant forever. Faithfulness. The older someone grows, the more further along in this journey of life, the more they are likely to lament to you that faithfulness cannot be found. And they will not be wrong. When you look among humanity, faithfulness is a rare thing. But God is always faithful. And so the psalmist says he's the 
promise-keeping God. He, he can be believed. And then he begins to run through a series of things that he has watched God do because God has promised his people he would do them. The next couple things sound very amazing. And it's a kind of passage in scripture that if you are an angry atheist, you want to rip it out of the Bible and put it in Christians' faces and say, your God says he does all this stuff, but I don't see him doing it. Um, things like, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. And we're going to go through these in a second. But if you're an angry atheist, you say, I don't see God doing any of that. God isn't Superman flying about the world, rescuing everyone who needs rescue. Uh, where is your superhero God who promises he will give freedom from oppression? The world is filled with oppression. Um, where is God? Well, the psalmist begins this list of things that he sees God do with the statement, God is the covenant-keeping God. It is in the context of him being in covenant with people. God doesn't promise to be Superman. He doesn't promise to fly around the world and rescue everyone who's in trouble in the very nick of time like a superhero. Rather, like we heard the Westminster Divine say, God is the giver of the curse. Why is the world frustrated? Why is the world filled with suffering, death, and pain? Uh, it's because God did it. It's because God cursed the earth. We are a sinful race. We live under God's wrath. There is a huge amount of oppression, a huge amount of suffering, a huge amount of destruction that is taking place this very moment in the world and it's not exactly like it's escaping god's notice it is the result of our being a rebellious race but god is a covenant keeper for those he loves those he has entered into relationship with they he oversees and god works his will for them it is an individual will that God has for each person, but God is active and God is present and God does things in the world. And what has the psalmist see God do for his people? Well, he has seen him give justice for the oppressed. Ever read the book of Esther and seen how things work out there? You've got a genocide about to happen. And God, behind the scenes, arranges human history, works among people to do his will and delivers his people. Esther is not the only place that happens. In fact, God is watching to maintain his people all the time. In Bible study this morning, we were in the book of Malachi, and we saw God promise, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O Jacob, will not be consumed. God is making sure his kingdom doesn't disappear. God is protecting his people from oppression every moment. The Lord gives food to the hungry. You can ask uh, Elijah about that, the ravens that brought him food. You can ask Christians through every age who have experienced the providence of God. They have looked to God for uh, their sustenance. They have prayed, give us this day our daily bread. 
and they have found God faithful. He has given them their daily bread. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. This takes place both physically and spiritually. God delivers his people from being prisoners. Ask the Christians who have escaped from the gulags of Russia or China. Uh, God gives freedom to the prisoners if you happen to be a saved person. You were a prisoner of sin and death and misery, and God has broken those chains. That's the kind of God he is. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Ask the man at the pool of Bethesda. He was blind, and now he saw. But even more than that, even though God has done miracles and opened the physical eyes of the blind, um, the same thing is true spiritually, too. If anyone actually sees the goodness of God, if anybody actually uh, views God in a way that makes them want to desire God, uh, according to Scripture, it's God opening up your inner eyes. Uh, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, which means maybe you don't. Uh, he who has eyes to see, let him see, which means maybe you don't. But God is the covenant-keeping God. He is building up his covenant community. He is drawing people to himself. If you have eyes to see him as he is, God has opened up the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises up those who are bowed down. Have you ever suffered despair? Have you ever been in the pit of darkness that you thought you could not get out of? Did you get out? Was God involved? The psalmist points to his involvement and says, God cares for his covenant people. Though we fall into these dark places where we cannot see the light, God is active and he reaches down and he brings us up out of that despair. Uh, the Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow the psalmist says, why should your purpose be to glorify him? Why should you find your comfort in him? This is who we're talking about. This is a God of grace, a God who loves, quote, the righteous. Who are the righteous? We use that term. It gets thrown around in the world, usually as an insult. Usually it's thrown at religious people and we're told we think we are self-righteous or you're more righteous than me, yada, yada, yada. But uh, who are the righteous, biblically? Well, they are those who are brought back into a right standing. They're those whom God has put back where they're supposed to be. They are now functioning rightly in his creation. Those who are righteous are those who have been restored. God has fixed the machine, at least he is in the process of fixing it. Sanctification is taking place. We are growing in grace. And we are beginning to give right glory to God again. We are again in the place we are supposed to be. And we are told God loves the righteous. It is difficult in most of the world's great religions for those who are in those religions to say with a straight face, the gods love me. Now, among the Hindu tradition of devotion, you do have some verbiage that way. Uh, 
among the Sufis of the Muslims, they sort of talk that way. But generally, in the history of world religion, the gods or the god, it's not really love that they hold for men. They hold man's needs, and man works out relationship with them by prayer and sacrifice to kind of get the gods or God to do what he wants. But Allah is not really known for his love. Allah doesn't think you're just wonderful and have a heart of compassion for you. Uh, Shiva doesn't really have a great deal of compassion for you. The gods are dangerous. The gods are powerful above you, and men are trying to placate them. But in Jesus Christ, in the covenant of God, we actually find a God who actually, truly loves us. And he loves us knowing us who we are. You see, God knows everything, which means in the language of the classic liturgy, you cannot dissemble anything from him. I love that term. It shows up in the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, we are not to dissemble our sins. That means we are not to go to God and say, Lord, I know it looks like this, but if you really understood it, it would actually be this. Uh, I'm, I'm guilty. Uh, you know, I only look guilty. It, I'm not really guilty. God knows literally everything. He knows you better than you do. And God still loves the righteous. He actually loves them. He loves you, knowing everything about you. In Psalm 130, the psalmist says, uh, God forgives, and that's why we fear him. I'm paraphrasing a little, but it's in Psalm 130. Uh, that's a remarkable statement, because the gods of the nations call upon men to fear them because they're powerful, because they can destroy them in an instant. And of course, the one true God could do that. But the one true God is so far above the gods that man has imagined, uh, he will forgive man. The gods of the world religions don't really focus on forgiveness that much. But God does. He forgives. He loves. He, he cares. The psalmist says he is worthy to be your purpose. He is dependable to be your comfort. This is our God. But make no mistake, all these promises do not apply to those who are outside because the psalmist finishes with, but the way of the wicked he will turn upside down. So uh, are there wicked people who feel oppressed? Yes. Are there wicked people who would like someone to come in and help them and deliver them? The answer is yes. Does God do that sort of thing? The answer is yes. But at the end of this litany, we're told not for you. What will God do with the wicked? He will turn their way upside down. He is as active doing that as he is loving the righteous. God is fully gracious. God is fully just. Um, God has cursed the world, but God loves the righteous. This is our God. He is perfect in his holiness. Love and justice kiss in him. 
There is no contradiction in them. Uh, but if you are in God's covenant, it's grace you receive. And God will show you his grace. And then finally, the psalmist says, why should you purpose your life around him? Why should you find your comfort? Well, his kingdom's going to last forever, and that's kind of a significant deal. The psalm ends with, uh, the Lord shall reign forever. Um, he calls on Zion this time. In the beginning of the psalm, he calls on the world. Then he calls on himself. Now he calls on those who are, quote, Zion. Your God will have an eternal kingdom, O Zion. Who, who is Zion? What is Zion? Well, in the Old Testament, it refers to the mountain where Jerusalem sits. It refers to the mountain where the temple is. But is that city and that temple, are, are they the real deal or are they shadows and types? My question is, is there a city of God that is greater than the sticks and bricks in the Middle East? Is there a temple of God that is more the real temple of God than that mere human construction? Well, if you turn to the New Testament, you find out the answer is yes. In Hebrews chapter 12, and beginning at verse 18, we read this. You have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of the voice of um, words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore, for they could not endure what was commanded. Quote, and if so much a beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion. You have come. The Christian has come. The original readers of the book of Hebrews have come to Mount Zion, and they weren't in Israel. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than the blood of Abel. So the writer to Hebrews says, you've come to a Zion, to a Jerusalem, that is the real Jerusalem, the real city of God. It is the assembly of the saints of God in heaven and earth that are around the king of God, the real Davidic king, which is Jesus Christ, you have come to Zion, you are in the real city. Or, to quote from the Revelation, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So who is the bride in the New Testament? Is it a physical city in the Middle East? Is Jesus Christ going to marry 
that mountain? Or is the bride of Christ the church of the living God, which is the actual city of God? The assemblage of his people is the real Jerusalem. The church of God is his real dwelling. It's his real temple. We are the bride of Christ. And the psalmist ends by reminding the people of Zion, the people of God, your king will reign forever. He is an eternal kingdom because he's an eternal king. You have no idea how many potentates, powers, principalities, important men have tried to scrub the earth of the kingdom of God. They have tried in every age, and in some ages, they have literally moved heaven and earth to destroy the influence of the city of God, to remove the kingship of Christ, and none of them have ever succeeded. The most powerful men on earth have not been able to grind the kingdom of God off earth. If it could be done, it would already be done. But the psalmist promises this kingdom shall remain. How can you not make it the focus of your life? How can you not make its king your comfort? And that brings us to where Christ is in this psalm. Jesus told his disciples at the end of the book of Luke that all of the scriptures were about him, and he actually mentions the book of Psalms in particular. So if you're reading any of the Old Testament and you're not seeing Jesus in it, you are misreading it. It's all about the Lord Christ. So where is Christ here? Well, this is Christ. He is the covenant of God. And when you're told, happy is the man who makes the God of Jacob his trust, well, how do you do that? Well, he's the Davidic king. He is what God has done to bring people into covenant with him. All these promises that the psalmist is making, they are all absolutely sitting upon the foundation that is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Uh, why do you have a purpose? It's, well, God's brought you into an eternal kingdom. Whose kingdom is it? It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Why do you have any purpose? Well, it's because Christ gave you one. Why do you have any comfort? It is because the Lord Christ is the action of God keeping his promise. God gave you Christ to redeem you to God. God always keeps his promises, but the promise is Christ. So if you are looking for depending on God, you have to depend on him in Jesus Christ. This psalm is not about anybody except those who are in Christ. And it is his kingdom. The bride comes for the bridegroom. And the bridegroom is Christ. It's brass tacks. It's simple. But sometimes we need simple. Sometimes we need to remember uh, just what is this about? And it's about, from our point of view, um, I am purposeless and I am without any comfort except God has provided that for me. And that is the only place you will find purpose. It is the only place you will find comfort. But in the promise that God has made in Jesus Christ, it is available to you.
Thanks be to God.